0: There we go, maybe you can hear me now. Last time I didn't use this microphone, uh, but I've been told that I have big lungs, so I don't really need one. I would agree, the Lord has given me larger than some have lungs. This morning, I wish that I could give you a passage to immediately turn to. Um, Things are going to be a little bit different this month, and maybe for uh, not only my sermon, but other sermons. We are going to be in God's Word this morning. We're going to be really all over the place because really for the first time since I've been here, and I think we, the Grace Covenant Church did this, if if I'm not mistaken, before we came, my family came in in late 2017, around the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We are preaching through the five solas, and this is what we're going to be doing this month. So really, we're going to be all over the place because even these fundamental doctrines that we hold dear, they're all over Scripture. So we're going to be all over the place, and you'll, you'll hear my cues. You will, um, I will tell you where to go, but for right now, we are not going to be starting with a particular passage. But I heard a story once by Carl Truman, and that name may sound familiar to you. I think we might have a resource or two of his um, in the foyer, in our little library there. But Carl Truman was asked a question. He goes, Professor Truman, why are so many evangelicals converting to Eastern Orthodoxy and to Roman Catholicism? And he goes, the reasons they vary. But really what it boils down to is that over the years, people have left because they feel that evangelicalism has a lack of historical roots. That is not to say that it doesn't have history. He says that it's a consciousness of history that is not a part of the package. People who once cared about rock band worship, people who once were gladly affirming to hear a sermon based upon a Coldplay album, they're looking for something more serious. They want something with theological and historical gravitas. And they feel that evangelicalism doesn't have the answers. So I'm here to tell you, friends, that evangelicalism has the roots. It has the answer. It has the gravitas that you may be looking for. But we live in a world where the popular saying is true for some. That whatever is newer is truer, and whatever is recent is decent. That may sound familiar to you. C.S. Lewis called this view of history chronological snobbery. In other words, he goes, it's an uncritical acceptance of whatever ideas and practices are popular today coupled with the naive assumption that whatever ideas and practice are now in the past, they are of no use. They're wrong. They're no longer popular. They're no longer in fashion. Therefore, we have no need of them. And there's also a saying that I wouldn't say is true, but it's, it's definitely popular. And I forget who said it, but he goes, Those who cannot learn from the history... Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But to me, this is to suggest that all history is, is bad. All history is wrong. And looking over history, maybe even the history of our own lives, like we, we can affirm there's been some difficult things. There's been some good things. And even with the most difficult things, God has redeemed those things. And has turned it out for our good. So history contains many ideas and practices that should be accepted. They should be practiced. They should be emulated. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4.9. He says that uh, he urged the Philippian church to practice what they learned, received, and heard in him. Things that are in the past to practice, to emulate So learning from the past, especially church history, is a good thing. It's an important thing. And one commentator, Philip Schaff, says these words, How shall we labor with any effect to build up the church if we have no thorough knowledge of her history? So by learning from church history, we can benefit. We can be built up. We can even be warned. From the wisdom of those who walked with the Lord, those who risked their lives for the sake of the gospel, for doctrinal purity, and for faithfulness unto the Lord. So with that in mind, as I said a little bit ago, through the month of December, the elders and our two elder candidates are going to be preaching on the historical theme of the five solas and the advent of Jesus Christ. And if you are in a position this morning where you're like, Dennis, I am not very up-to-date with this word that you're using called the five solas. It, it sounds pretty weird to me. You're in good company because I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible because I'm a simple man. But the five solas is a modern term. It's a modern term that has roots or old paths, from the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was during the time of the 16th and 17th century. It was a time whenever much was at stake. The church was under attack. The church was in great need of reform. There was spiritual darkness. The Bible was a closed book, so people were spiritually ignorant. The gospel was perverted, and personal holiness was abandoned. And because of what was decided at the fourth session at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church declared that the truths of God are found in two sources. That, that a little bell, a little red flag should go off in your mind right about now. The truths of God are found in dual sources. Those sources being church, church tradition and scripture. Church tradition is something that can be a good thing. We have some traditions here that we, we love, and they are no way outside of the bounds of Scripture. But these churches' tr- tradition, as far as the Roman Catholic Church goes, these were outside of the bounds of Scripture. They thought that not only divine truth should be trumped by church tradition, but they thought that it carried more weight than the revelation of God. And revelation from God should be, you know, we, we should know, we should remember that. Yeah, Lori's shaking her head, yes. We should remember, Pastor Andrew, Pastor Joel, maybe even myself, adult Sunday school, there's two kinds of revelation from God we have nature and we have special. General, special revelation heard some good answers very very good job so you might be asking yourself dennis can you give us a scenario where church tradition trumped scripture absolutely so i want to bring to your mind a word indulgences you probably have heard these before maybe you know what they are but according to the roman catholic church there were two kinds of of sin there was a mortal sin a mortal sin is a sin that where a a person cannot receive any kind of grace it is outside of god's grace they receive eternal condemnation and punishment then there is another kind of sin that deserves temporal punishment and this is a purification that a happens on earth b happens in purgatory So, Roman Catholics believe that Christians are either in one of three locations. They're on earth, they're in purgatory being purified and refined and punished, or they're in heaven. So, what are Christians to do if they have loved ones who have passed away, is there anything that we can do that Christians can do to help our beloved loved ones as they're probably in purgatory being purified and, and tormented for their sins? Well, the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, there is something that you can do. And it's called an indulgence. And John Tetzel is a name that may sound familiar to you. He was a 16th century friar and indulgent salesman and he's known for this very popular line saying this as soon as the coin in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs in other words you want to help out your loved one who's in purgatory right now under torment being purified because they're not good enough to go to heaven on the merit of jesus christ no this is on their merit What are they able to do? Well, you're able to give some of your money. And you're going to buy these indulgences. And whenever you buy these indulgences, it's going to release this treasury that Christ has of all the works of Christ, along with the works of the saints. And your loved one is going to receive the grace that they need to escape purgatory and to be released into heaven. So Martin Luther said, This isn't in Scripture. This, this isn't true. And as the sale of indulgences grew, Luther, if you remember, posted his 95 theses for academic debate. And number 50 of this particular 95 theses pointed out that indulgent cells were not for the pious purpose. They didn't have any biblical purpose. They were designed simply to fill the church and to build monuments to men and not to God. So... The underlying issue with indulgences is that it was unbiblical. The underlying issue with indulgences was really one of authority. Did the magisterium, did the popes, did the bishops, did the Roman Catholic Church, did it have final authority? Did God's word have final authority? So in addition to Luther, there were other reformers. There was John Knox and John Calvin, Holdrick Swingley. These and others, for instance, they committed their lives to a recovery of fundamental doctrines that summarize the biblical gospel. And by God's providence would help the church regain what was hidden and what was, per, what was perverted. So, these fundamental doctrines are known by five Latin phrases. They are sola Scriptura. that's going to be today's topic, sola scriptura which is the formal cause of the reformation it's also the foundation from all these other doctrines flow we have to get it right with scripture if we don't get it right with scripture we're not going to get anything else right so the second one is solus christus christ alone sola fide faith alone sola gratia grace alone soli deo gloria to the glory of god alone And speaking about the doctrines of grace, these fundamental doctrines that we see here in the five solas, they all stand or fall in their connection to Scripture. So today, as I said, we're going to be speaking about sola scriptura. And it's not a distinctly reformed theological term. I think we hear it mostly in theological, reformed theological circles, but it's not a distinct reformed term. In fact, it's been held by evangelical, uh, historical evangelicalism for some time. You probably affirmed the truth of Sola Scriptura even before you knew what it meant or the old paths that it came from. So, since it is a lot of information, I'm going to talk about this morning, about, especially if you're a note-taker, what Sola Scriptura is and what Sola Scriptura is not. The simple definition, friends, is that sola scriptura, Scripture alone, is the final authority for our lives. It is all that we need to know God for salvation, for faith, for life, and for godliness. Now, sola scriptura, under the category about what it's not, does not mean that all truth is, about everything in life, every aspect of life, is found in the Bible. What I mean by that is this. You will be hard-pressed to find anything in Scripture that has to do with rocket science. You would have, you, be hard-pressed to find anything in Scripture if the alternator on your car goes out, and you need a manual on how to take it out and fix it and replace all these things. You will be hard-pressed to find in God's Word to build a house like a good blueprint for how to build a house. It doesn't have every truth for every aspect of life. It also doesn't include sola scriptura under this umbrella, creeds or confessions of the church. Creeds and confessions are a wonderful thing. Last year, we went through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession in Sunday school. I'm not questioning the 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 legitimacy of any creed or confession they're gifts from god they serve as guardrails for the church but they do not carry the same weight that scripture does they fall below scripture sola scriptura also does not include the apocrypha which is the catholic bible and the 1689 confession helps us here the apocrypha not being of divine inspiration Are no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore are of no authority to the church of God. Sola Scriptura also does not mean I have my Bible alone in my hands. I don't need the church. I have Christ. I have His Word. I don't need the church. Again, that would go against what the Apostle Paul was. speaking about in 1 Corinthians 12 how the body is under the head of Christ the body was created for not only for God's glory but for the good of other people like we can we can't do this life without each other this is the way that Christ built his church and is continuing to build his church the believer is a gift the believer is a use, useful instrument within the local church, and the local church is a gift to the believer. So, what is Sola Scriptura then? Well, again, it's the final authority for our lives, meaning nothing else is equal to it, not the opinions of man. I came across a quote the other day from Spurgeon that said, The Bible is the anvil on which the opinions of man are smashed. The opinions of man aren't equal god's word church tradition human reason church leadership wonderful things they all rank below the word of god so the question that 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 may be on your minds right now is why does it carry so much authority above all else why does the bible why does god's word why does it trump human reason why does it trump church leaders and 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 what they think why does it trump opinions of what anyone has to say it's because whenever god speaks it's authoritative hebrews one one through two there's your first passage friends you can go there if you like hebrews one one through two you probably remember pastor joel preaching on this it's been a minute The author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, we have parameters parameters on how the bible defines the method in which god speaks god speaks authority but that has to be defined it has to be qualified there needs to be parameters here or it gets really dangerous these parameters are this he revealed himself speaking to the prophets through his son jesus christ jesus then spoke to his disciples who are the eyewitnesses or They were the companions of eyewitnesses. Or we have, like, the situation where the Apostle Paul was called up to the third heaven himself, receiving revelation from God and personal one on one discipleship with Christ. So God spoke to the prophets, his chosen instruments. These were God's words to specific, particular people. So, scripture authority. It stems from inspiration. This is what the reformers believed. This is what they were attempting to recover. As important as church traditions are, as important as councils are, leaders are, they do not come from the inspired nature like God's Word does. So Scripture is inspired by God. Second Timothy 3 16 through 17, a very familiar verse to all of you. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, authority stems from inspiration. What do Pastor Joel, what does he say before he, reads a particular passage, I said it just a minute ago, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we have inspiration. We have a word that's divine because it's inspired by God. J.I. Packer comments on this. Inspired by God translates a single Greek word, theonoustos, meaning breathed out by God. This means... All of Scripture came from God and therefore should be received as instruction from God. Inspiration is the activity which ensures that what is written is in the truth of the Word of God. Thus, inspired Scripture is written revelation. So, we have God who's not aloof, a God who is very actively involved, a God who reveals himself to people, to prophets, specific, particular people who recorded what God's word has to say or what God said. This wasn't a passive stance. God was very actively involved in the writing and recording of Scripture. 2 Peter one twenty one: For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophecy that we see in God's word, it didn't originate in the thoughts of man. No man that's ever been born, that ever will be born before Christ returns can ever will a prophetic statement. They cannot do this on their own. It doesn't originate with them. It has to originate outside of them. It has to originate with God. And there's been many instances, I'm thinking of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who they claim to have special gifts of foretelling the future, the second coming of Christ, or who would win a particular presidential election. I saw a video the other day where a person who claimed to be a prophet of God thought that a particular president was going to win the 2020 election. And guess what? He got it wrong. And he had to make a public profession recanting his statement, still justifying, well, I was wrong about this particular thing, but I'm not wrong about everything. Right? So again, if we were to go back to Deuteronomy 18, what happens to a prophet who speak supposedly a word of prophecy and they get it wrong they die so the prophecy that we see in scripture it did not originate with man and the reason they get it wrong is because they're not speaking on behalf of god they are imperfect they aren't god prophecy shows that god's control over history And that what he predicts does come to pass. Prophecy comes and originates from God. Not man, it is God's word. But God does use men. I think that's the really cool thing. How God invites or chose certain men to be instruments of his, to give this prophetic word to people. I think that's really, really cool. God uses men this prophetic teaching, they spoke from God, and what's interesting is they used their own vocabulary, they had their own personalities, but what they said was not their own message, it was a message from God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was the Spirit that enabled them to say exactly what God wanted them to say. One example, and it's a poor example, forgive me in advance, that I use with my students to kind of explain this, so they could wrap their ma- minds around this, is back in high school, many of you adults can relate to this, but kids, you, you cannot. But back in high school, we didn't have cell phones. <gasps> so how did loved ones or two high school kids who thought they loved each other, and I did, how did they communicate with one another back then we wrote love notes so with every passing period right we would get our work done in class we would write a little love note to each other we still have these love notes by the way and we would give them to each other in our passing period some classes we had together some we didn't but we would read them and you know get all excited because man this is a love letter right this is, this is awesome in the same way again poor example forgive me but they were my words The pen or pencil that I used was my instrument. Okay, God in the same way, sort of. So much better of a way. Used men as instruments, as pens, to write these letters, these love letters to his people. So the fact that God is involved changes everything. Sola Scriptura means that scripture alone is the final authority for the Christian. It is enough. Nothing else should be equal to it. And this is the case because of divine revelation. We have a message, the actual words from God that were breathed out. Therefore, it's trustworthy and it's free from error. So, the authority of the Bible rests on its own claim to be the Word of God, but it rests on something else. It rests on what Jesus thought of Scripture. And this is what Jesus thought of Scripture. If you remember, whenever Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, how did, how did Jesus respond to each temptation from Satan? He went to Scripture. That's right. I heard someone say that. Jesus referred to scripture it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god again it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test be gone satan it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve jesus had a high view of scripture this was the old testament Knowing what Jesus thinks about Scripture is so important. But not only that, in John 10.35, Jesus saying into a response to the Jews who were trying to uh, accuse him of blasphemy, he says these words to him, Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, this was a reference to the Old Testament. Scripture, it cannot be dismissed. It cannot be torn away. Jesus had the high view of Scripture. It testifies, He does, that Scripture cannot be broken, dismissed, or torn away. Scripture, even more so, should be a final authority for us. And it also speaks to God's sovereignty, does it not? And how He has preserved Scripture over these years. The prophet Isaiah, and later the apostle Peter, states these words, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls but the word of our lord remains forever so there is a permanence to god's word it cannot be broken it cannot be dismissed it cannot be torn away jesus had a high view of scripture scripture should be the final authority in our lives amen but is it enough is scripture sufficient is it enough for me? Well, in the Protestant Reformation, it wasn't enough, was it? This is why the Roman Catholic Church went out of the bounds of Scripture to church tradition, to the magisterium, what the Pope and the, and the bishops, other church leaders thought. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 3-5 through says these words, "...for the time is coming whenever people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, what was going on in the Protestant Reformation days, what was going on in the Apostle Paul days, is the same thing that happens in our day as well. People still do not endure sound teaching. They flee to teachers. They flee from God's word. And sometimes they flee from the words of God and they flee to what thoughts and what private revelation that they conjure up themselves. In 2004, Sarah Young wrote a book and it sold more than 30 million copies. And this book is called Jesus Calling. This is what she says in the introduction. I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in my prayer journals for years, but it was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. So, for Sarah Young, for many others, they claim to speak on behalf of God. They would not probably admit That God's word is not sufficient, but by their actions. This is what they're claiming. This is what they are affirming. God's word is not enough for me. I need something outside of scripture to make me feel better. Or for whatever reason they come up with. Again, looking at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We went there just a little bit ago. We know that Scripture is God-breathed, but what else about Scripture does this passage tell us? It's profitable. It's good for. It's perfect for. It's sufficient for. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, thinking about Sarah Young and anyone else like her, who claims to speak for God outside of what God has revealed to us biblically, there is no category for anything like that. And since there is no category for this revelation, there is no need for this revelation. Therefore, friends, we should not read this private or personal revelation. Anything In addition to scripture, as an authority, undermines the sufficiency of God's word. Whether scripture, or for scripture, whether for church tradition, cults, many cults still have their living prophets, the charismatic teachers that we hear about today, with their personal revelations, the sufficiency of scripture means that we don't need any more special revelation? Remember what the book of Hebrews said just a little bit ago. In these last days, how did God speak to us? Through His Son. We don't need any more inspired, inerrant words because God's already given it to us. We have what we need for salvation, we have what we need for the Christian life. The Bible is what God in His providence concluded that we would need if god is a sovereign providential god in his kindness revealing himself he has given us his word providentially this is this is what he's given us and it should be enough and listen i get it there i I would be lying to you friends if you know years ago i didn't say god would you I'm faced with a decision, Lord. Give me wisdom, give me discernment. Lord, give me a sign. Am I right? Just me? Okay. Well, I get it. Like I feel sometimes or used to feel sometimes that life would be easier if God would just speak to me. I would be lying. Like I said, if I didn't say that. But as one itinerant preacher has said, and it's a really good line. If you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. And if you want to hear God's voice out loud, read the Bible out loud. Scripture is sufficient. We see a great example that the Bible is all that we need for salvation in the life of Timothy. So if you're still in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy, We read 16 through 17 a little bit ago. Let's look at 14 and 15. But, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So not only did Timothy, not only was he taught the things of God from his mother and grandmother, but Paul urged him to, all right, you received the sacred writings, you received you know, uh, sacred writings that were good enough for you to know the Lord. You're gonna have to go outside the bounds of Scripture, Timothy, to find out what else God would have for you. That's, that's, not, that's not what Paul says. He says this, continue in what you have learned from them, his mother and his grandmother, which he did through the sacred writings that made him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, these sacred writings that make people wise for salvation, the reason that that is, friends, is because we do have God's word, God's word that is inspired, but it's the Holy Spirit that is also working in the life of Timothy and for you and lord willing your kids to illuminate what this is saying so that we can understand it remember the natural man is spiritually discerned he he can't understand the things of god we must need something outside of ourselves to help us understand what scripture is saying we have the holy spirit working within the sacred writings that's the bible and because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than than any two-edged sword, because the sacred writings contain the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and faith comes by hearing. People come to a saving knowledge of Christ through the sacred writings because the Holy Spirit illuminating the passages, making the gospel easy for us to understand, and also the Holy Spirit regenerating our dead hearts, taking out that which is dead and taking that which is unable for us to do, a heart that responds to God in that divine stimuli. So God gave us his word, sufficient word that is authoritative for our life, still doesn't leave us there. He helps us understand it. Holy Spirit is working on our behalf We have these sacred writings that help us be wise unto salvation. I mean, all glory should go to God for this. This is nothing that we can do on our own. We can't save ourselves. But God, working in the hearts of you and me and your children, makes it so that we can understand these things that he told us from long time ago. It is, it is just a beautiful picture of God's providence. It's a beautiful picture of God's kindness in each one of our lives that he would make himself known. I mean, if, if you think about all the other religions in the world, like we have a personal creator and not, not only one who is a personal divine creator, but one that, who died for us. It, it, it is a beautiful thing, friends. And all glory goes to God for that. So, we are told in 16 and 17, these verses from 2 Timothy, that Scripture is profitable. It equips the man of God for every good work. And we're told in Ephesians 2 that we we were created in Christ to do good works. We are His workmanship. And the really neat thing is that the good works that we even do, we don't even, can't even take credit for because even those things in God's providence were set up before the foundation of the world. But yet, where we are right now, some of those good works that he has, or He wants to equip us for, that he set up, we can't do apart from God's word. Like there is a need in your life, there's a need in my life for us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. And that only happens with God's word. That happens as we sit under good biblical preaching that happens as we are spending time in god's word and personal devotions that happens whenever uh moms and dads you're sitting down with your kids with family devotions and you're not making it difficult you're not making it you're not overthinking it but you're just sitting down with them in the living room you're opening up god's word and you're reading to them and you're answering really good questions like what does this say about god what does this say about me? What about this passage make us, makes us give glory and honor and praise to God? What about this particular passage that leads us to repentance? Like these are really good things that we can think about that will equip us for every good work that God is setting up for us to do. God's word is perfect. And this is what David This is the idea that David has in Psalm 19. It's good for everything. This is all that we need. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So sola scriptura, this commitment, commitment that the reformers had, commitment that if you're raised in the church and you're raised by godly parents, Godly grandparents like Timothy was. These, these are commitments that they even held to. And this is us learning from history, right? We can, we can adopt these things. We can practice these things. We should emulate these things. But this was the battle cry of the reformers. God's word is the final authority. God's word is sufficient for salvation, sufficient for the Christian life. This must be our anthem as well this must be our commitment as i mentioned a little bit ago the charismatic movement is known for propagating personal or private revelation they feel that the bible is a dead letter it's not as exciting it's not as important coupled with their god spoke to me god gave me a prophetic word for you which is i would love to read your body language whenever someone says that to you be gentle be nice Be courteous. May your speech be be seasoned with salt. But not only do they have those revelations, even with you in mind, these are people who claim that they can still work miracles. These are people who say that they can heal blind people. These are people who say that they can take a lame, crippled person by laying hands on them, They can walk again. These are people who say that they're able to put their ears on the ears of deaf people and they're able to hear again. And I want us to be very, 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 very cautious because what I'm not saying is that God can't do miracles. God can absolutely do miracles. We should be cautious and we should hold to the commitment of what's already been shown to us, what's already been told to us. This is sufficient for me. God is a miracle worker in these passages. God still does miracles today. Thinking about your salvation, is that not a miracle, friends? Something that you can't do on your own. God absolutely still does miracles today, but the charismatic movement, friends, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. They, they undermine Scripture they deceive people that if they have enough faith, they're actually able to even heal themselves or worse, faith and trust is in the healer more so than, than God and trusting his providence. And what makes the charismatic movement so dangerous is in the fact that it's, it's politically incorrect to really even say anything to them. It's, it's wildly embraced. One commentator says this, Thinking about the sufficiency of Scripture, how it's undermined, how it's attacked. God's truth is in the crosshairs of a world in love with its sin. We need to be more committed to upholding Scripture as the true standard and final authority. And friends, if you're a believer in this room today, you are also called to defend the truth against all that would seek to undermine its authority and this is what Jude had in mind whenever he wrote to his readers I'm thinking about Jude 3 he instructs his readers to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints and whenever Jude is talking about this this faith he did not mean that faith as in a personal trust, having faith in something, but the faith, the the needs to be included before it. It's actually like a list of doctrines, a list of fundamental, foundational doctrines that should be held to, this is what they should contend. And of course, he is talking about the gospel. He is talking about objective truths from scripture that make up our Christian faith. So brothers and sisters, whenever you are in a position to defend the truth, whenever you're in a position to, with gentleness, correct, when someone undermines the sufficiency of Scripture, you must pray for wisdom. You must have courage, knowing that standing firm can be a dangerous thing. Think about the Reformers. Uh, I recently learned that Queen Mary... uh, killed almost 300 Protestant reformers back in the 16th century, thinking about Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, thinking about these men who were killed. Why? Because they were contending for the faith. It is a dangerous thing. But thinking about the reformers, thinking about all those who lost their lives, thinking about their blood that was spilt It's a powerful testimony that contending for the faith is something that's worthwhile, something that should be done. So friends, thinking about sola scriptura, the authority, the sufficiency of God's word, what connection does that have to Advent? Well, if God did not plan a redemptive, rescue mission there would be no hope there would be no wonderful counselor there would be no mighty god there would be no everlasting father there would be no prince of peace if god did not plan we would be without hope if he did not make it fulfilled what he foretold what he fulfilled we wouldn't have any hope if god did not speak through the prophets through his son jesus christ We wouldn't know. So, through God's word that he breathed out, God made himself known through redemption history, speaking to and through his prophets of one that would crush the head of the serpent, one who would come forth from the shoot, from the stump of Jesse, one that would be despised, one that would be rejected. One who would bear the griefs and carry the sorrows of many. One who would be pierced for transgressions, crushed for iniquities, whose soul would make an offering for guilt. One who did not deserve it, would, be, but who would be numbered among the transgressors. One who would make intercessions for those transgressors. Who would bear the government upon his shoulder. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He would serve on the throne of David with justice and with righteousness. One like the Son of Man that was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away like His word. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed also like his word. When God spoke, and what God spoke, what prophecy that he gave that wasn't by the will of man, but by the will of God, became a reality in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as the scriptures which have uh, authority foretold the advent, the first advent, of Christ so too they speak of Jesus's second advent where he will come in glory and at His appearing every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and as John would say be ready so that you do not shrink back that is coming, that we would have confidence. Confidence now that we can approach the throne of grace. Confidence that is appearing whenever he comes, that we wouldn't shrink back, but that we would look with expectation that we would rejoice that our king has come to take us home. So as you celebrate this Advent season, friends, I pray that you give God thanks and praise for not being a God that's far off, A God that is aloof, but a God who has made himself known through his special revelation, using fallible men for his infallible message, a preserved message of one that would come, his son Jesus Christ. Long he was expected, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins he would release us. So let us find our rest in thee born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. This is what has been foretold to you. This is what became a reality in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for his infallible, inerrant, trustworthy word, making us wise to salvation, equipping us for every good work let us pray father we come before your throne this morning lord Privileged that we could even stand before your throne as we approach it in desperate need of grace in desperate need of mercy lord we are a needy people a rebellious people lord we desperately desperately need you Lord, thank you you for making yourself known to us through your word by the mouths of prophets, not for leaving us, Lord, but giving us your divine revelation, making us wise to salvation. Father, I pray that you would help us submit to your word as our final authority. Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of those who don't know you so that you would make them wise unto salvation. Father, we thank You before the foundation of the world making a covenant with Your Son that He would be pierced for our transgressions, that He would save us. For He who is mighty has done such a great thing for us. We pray all these things in Your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.